This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class by Mike Davis, out now in a new edition. Prisoners of the American Dream is Mike Davis's brilliant exegesis of a persistent and major analytical problem for Marxist historians and political economists. Why has the world's most industrially advanced nation never spawned a mass party of the working class? This series of essays surveys the history of the American bourgeois democratic revolution, from its Jacksonian beginnings to the rise of the new right and the re-election of Ronald Reagan, concluding with some bracing thoughts on the prospects for progressive politics in the United States. Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class, by Mike Davis, out now in a new edition from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Socialism, it of course entails the democratic ownership of the means of production. This is one reason that a minimalist liberal approach to social welfare, resting entirely on progressive taxation, falls short. It leaves ownership and the political economic power embedded in that ownership in the hands of capitalists. At worst, A liberal program merely offers workers the means for the social reproduction of their labor power. At best, it can offer a more decent life, including lengthy paid vacations and parental leave. This is, I think, one of the major shortcomings of some universal basic income proposals. It leaves capitalist relations of production intact while providing an expanded welfare state to cushion the blow. Don't get me wrong, I'm all for an expansion of the welfare state. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what socialism should offer is freedom by way of the democratic control over our polity and economy, and thus over our future as a society. Matt Brunig has one proposal out at his People's Policy Project on how to begin to do just that, and it's called a social wealth fund. I think it's an elegant proposal because it provides a straightforward method for the state as it currently exists to gradually socialize the assets of every single publicly traded company in the United States by way of purchasing their stocks. It's one piece of what a social democratic road to democratic socialism might look like. I say one piece because no single policy can make for full socialism. For one, Matt's proposal doesn't deal with the control of privately held companies, which would have to be socialized in some other fashion. It also doesn't definitively answer the question of what role markets should ultimately play in a socialist economy, and relatedly, how to radically decommodify broad swaths of our economy, like healthcare, energy, and housing. Nor will it answer the question of, under socialism, what parts of an economy should be owned by the people via the state, and what parts should be directly controlled by workers through worker cooperatives and the like. Plus, The companies that the American people will control under this scheme are more often than not ruthless exploiters of labor, destroyers of the environment, and producers of shit culture. It's true. Democratic ownership of our society's productive capacity 
doesn't automatically mean a change in what is produced or how. But democratic ownership of the means of production, which Matt's policy proposes to advance, is without a doubt a prerequisite for redirecting production toward less damaging and more socially useful ends. In short, I think the Social Wealth Fund might be an important non-reformist reform, one that has the virtue of being open-ended enough to take us via one policy mechanism from small board change to something far more transformational. Before we move on to the interview, one of the most frequent compliments I get about the show is how detailed the discussions are. First, thank you for those kind words. Second, you should know that the interviews are so detailed because I do a huge amount of reading and preparation before each and every one. And I can only do that because listeners support us at patreon.com slash the dig. Contributors also get access to our newsletter. And if you donate enough, left-wing books mailed to your door. Again, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Thank you. And here's Matt Brunig, the founder of the People's Policy Project, a socialist think tank. Matt Brunig, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having me. I want to start by asking you to remind people why a social wealth fund is important, which is, of course, that there's a huge amount of wealth inequality in this country. Sketch out just how unequal the situation is. Yeah, so uh, a few factoids for you. The top 1% of families owns more wealth than the bottom 95% of families combined. Millionaires own 80% of the country's wealth, while the bottom third of families owns none of it. Uh, more recently, we've seen a, in a rapid escalation of wealth concentration. So in the last 10 years or so, the average wealth of the top 1% increased by $4.9 million at the same time as the wealth of the median family declined by 42000 So we have a situation where basically the top 10% of families own almost all the wealth, and the bottom third or so own virtually none of it. And then you have this sort of middle class that has a little bit of wealth. And that arrangement has is, is sort of always been like that, even though it's getting worse in more recent years. You point out that contrary to the conventional wisdom, that the, the halcyon post-war pre-neoliberal years weren't so great either. Yeah, I think I think there is a myth that a lot of political advocates sort of buy into where they say, hey, you know, obviously the mid-century was bad in many ways for race and gender, but, you know, we did have a good class, you know, uh, compression. I think someone actually calls it the great compression. That's when the class differences were really shrunken and things did get more equal. Um, what, what you what you saw in a lot of Western countries was inequality ran up really high before the Great Depression and the two world wars, and then it came down in the middle of the last century. And I think, and then since then, it's it's come back. You know, wealth inequality is is as bad as as it was in the Gilded Age uh, in the U.S. at least. And a lot of people sort of take that trend up 
down, up, and they say, oh, when it was down, that was good. That was a good period. And it was a relatively good period, but it was still not a great period. So, for instance, uh, in 1962, the bottom 40% of families owned 0.3% of the national wealth. So the bottom 40% owns less than 1% of the wealth. Today, the bottom 40% owns negative 0.5%. So they, they have more debt than they have assets in total. But you go from basically owning 1% of the national wealth to owning negative 1% of the national wealth. And that's a decline, but obviously owning 1% of the national wealth was not a great, was not a great period either. This is not the main point of your paper, but you note by way of introduction to your proposal for a social wealth fund that capitalism appears to have a sort of internal feedback loop that leads people with wealth to accumulate yet more of it. And this is something that Marx identified a long time ago and many have noted since. I actually cut out a lot of uh, the description of that because, like you noted, it wasn't. I didn't want to dwell on it too much. But there's been a lot of interesting research in trying to figure out and trying to model why this happens. Why is it the case that it seems like over and over again in in these kinds of societies, the top twenty percent ends up owning eighty percent of the wealth? That was the old um, Pareto distribution. Um, named after an Italian economist who observed that that's what Italy's wealth distribution looked like way back. I don't know when, I think 300 years ago is when he observed that. Um, And that that pattern just comes up again and again and again and again. And so obviously there's a lot of uh, interest in figuring out where it comes from. And, and, And people have put together these simulations. Like there's one called Sugarscape, and it's like a computer simulation where there's a sort of grid and every square on the grid is sort of like a piece of land that has some amount of sugar on it. And everyone is kind of given a random starting point. And, you know, what they basically show is if you had a little bit more sugar starting out, then over time through transactions and everything else, you end up converging to this distribution where the top 20% owns 80% of the stuff. So it seems to be baked into sort of the way that capitalism works, where it takes small differences that people have in income and initial endowment, and it blows those up over time because people who are in a superior position are able to get more, right? Wealth begets wealth. Uh, So that's a sort of trend that just seems to pop up everywhere. Uh, and so, yeah, this is sort of a, a way to say, look, this is a trend we have. We got to be we got to be aware of this as, as being a thing that that happens, and and we need to design our responses to it with that understanding in mind that this is this is a natural outcome of of the system. It's interesting that this this algorithm that you're talking about how it goes back from a sort of artificially constructed mathematical moment of of primitive accumulation and shows what happens from there. But what happens in contemporary political debates and always seems to happen is that people defend the status quo by saying that whatever wealth inequality exists is the result of these inherent pre-political property rights. 
but what what this research suggests is is quite the opposite that the inequalities that exist in fact inexorably stem from the theft at the very root of it all there are some people who manage to move up and down and and that sort of thing but it is true that the starting point matters so much and then you can go through successive generations, right? And, th- and they show some of this stuff, even in, in countries where you think uh, are a little bit more egalitarian, where they'll say, hey, if you track uh, the, the surnames of the most powerful people in Italy 600 years ago, those surnames are also the surnames of the most powerful people in Italy today, for the most part. Uh, and that they'll do the same thing in Sweden or China or, you know, so it, it does seem to be a, a kind of self-perpetuating thing. Uh, and wealth in particular because of the way that it is passed down generations. So I have another factoid in the piece. I think this was uh, Gabriel Zuckman came up with this figure where he said that 60% of U.S. wealth has been inherited. Um, so the only only the other 40% you can kind of attribute uh, to the fact that, well, I... Uh, you know, I had an income and I saved it up and I've built up, you know, a nest egg. The remaining 60%, which is most of it, is is transmitted down generations. And, of course, that 40% is going to be affected by how much you inherited or what your position was, you know, when you, when you were starting out uh, as an adult also. But, yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it, does, it does work like that. As Donald Trump uh, wisely put it, it was the... Uh the heir to the Hilton dynasty, Baron Hilton, who, uh, you know, he disdainfully noted just won the sperm lottery, unlike his own children. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. Absolutely. Unlike his own Baron. And, but, but then but then Trump will say, uh, well, I only got a million dollar loan from my father. <laughs> so and who, who amongst they, us? They find ways. Who amongst us? Right. Of course. If I needed, <laughs> if I needed it, I could get it, I'm sure. Lay out what a social wealth fund is in capsule form and what it might look like in the United States. And then I have a lot of detailed questions about that to ask you. Yeah, so the idea is pretty straightforward. You create an investment fund, not unlike a mutual fund or a university endowment. And you give everyone in the country one share of ownership over the fund. From there, you fill the fund up with assets, You want to be buying stocks, bonds, real estate, the usual suspects when it comes to a a financial fund. And as you fill the fund up with assets, the ownership shares become more valuable, right? Because the assets that the share represents are going up and up and up. And so there's a kind of direct way in which wealth inequality is reduced because everyone owns an equal share of this pot of wealth and this pot of wealth is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then from there, you don't allow people to sell their shares because that would create the problem we're trying to avoid in the first place, which is, you know, that when people are allowed to transact and that sort of thing, you end up with this really high inequality. Instead of letting them sell their shares, you say, look, you're going to have to hold on to your share, but the investment return that you get on your share that everyone gets on their share, we're going to pay that out to you every year as a what I call a universal basic dividend. And so that's the basically the nuts and bolts of it. And of course, one of the big aspects of it, which is uh, somewhat uh, down the, the chain of discussion, is that 
the way we're going to fill up the fund is we're going to levy really, you know, targeted taxes on the wealthiest individuals in society. So there's going to be a very direct way in which the wealth held by the very richest people in society are going to come out of their pockets and into the fund, which we all own collectively. And so through that process, you kind of gradually um, spread out the ownership of wealth. And then you also spread the, gradually spread the wealth around. That's the basic idea. Something that's very elegant about your proposal is the way it uses like plausible institutional mechanisms to eventually fully socialize wealth. Can you explain a little bit about about how that would work as as a process um, and why it's something that's a lot more radical than mere after tax redistribution of wealth, which is something that a lot of Iglesian liberals tend to focus their proposals on? So as a process, the sort of socialization mechanism is let's take an institution that already exists in our capitalist economy, which is the idea of a fund that has multiple members. So hedge funds, uh, mutual funds, exchange-traded funds. We have all these funds that exist from institutional investors that will have uh, at times millions, maybe even hundreds of millions of members. And we take that idea and we just tweak it a little bit and we say, okay, why don't we just have a big fund? Everyone in the country is a member and we all own one share. And right away, that sort of you know, uh, turns it into a much more interesting and, and, and strange proposition because typically the funds, the members own an amount equal to what they've put in, right? And so it doesn't really ameliorate inequality at all. But here we're saying, no, everyone's going to own an equal part of this fund and we're going to move money away from the wealthiest people into this fund. And so it's a very kind of smooth process that doesn't involve any kind of novel things like if you can understand how endowment works you can understand how this works which most people i think can um and the reason it differs is twofold right so one is you get direct ownership of the assets so the norwegian wealth fund is a good example of this they have a now it's up over one trillion dollars they have this social wealth fund in which they own a lot of global equity and bonds and real estate and when you own stocks in particular, that gives you the right to vote on questions that are posed by the company that you own. So a company is going to say, hey, we want uh, to pay our, our CEO $20 million next year. That goes to a shareholder vote, and it has to be improved by the shareholders. And you could say, if you own the shares publicly through this fund, you could say, you know, no, thank you vote it down, get us something lower. And Norway actually does that. So like, for instance, they own um, some of Tesla's stock. And Tesla put forward a compensation package for Elon Musk that was quite excessive. And Norway <laughs> voted against it. Um, so, you know, you start to move into being able to not just get the benefit, the, the money benefit from owning, but also exerting control uh, in a way that is still consistent with the way we've kind of set up, you know, corporate systems. As you just mentioned, Norway has a social wealth fund. And so as as clever as you are and your paper is, you did not invent this this idea. I want to ask you about where it's been the history of the proposal 
the idea a little bit and, and where it's been tried before. First, explain what the Meidner plan was in Sweden and, and why it failed. Yes, so the Meidner plan was uh, put together by a man named Rudolf Meidner. He was an economist with their equivalent of the AFL-CIO, so their trade union federation. And he was a big player in the Social Democratic Party in Sweden, which used to be much uh, uh, more left than it is now. Um, and, you know, Sweden uh, in the mid-century, they'd kind of gone through what we might now describe as a kind of typical social democratic trajectory. They had built the best welfare state in the world. They posted, even today, the lowest inequality that's ever been recorded in a country measured by the Gini coefficient. So they had kind of taken that as far as it would go. You know, they built the welfare state. They got income inequality really low. They have a trade union uh, movement that's that's strong and, and, you know, persistent. Their left had been in control for 40 straight years, just winning election after election after election. And this was sort of going to be the capstone, was the Meidner plan, where they're going to say, okay, we've got all that in a row. Now it's time to take the last step and take ownership of our companies. And so the Meidner plan was going to impose a 20% tax on the profits of Swedish companies, not unlike a corporate income tax like we have here. But rather than have them pay that tax in the form of cash they were going to have them issue new shares to a fund that was going to be owned by the trade unions or later were were owned by regional um, governments. And so you think about this, well, every year we're getting uh, new shares from all of our companies equal to 20% of their profits. You run this out over the course of 20, 30 years and do the math, and we're going to own the majority of every Swedish company in 20 or 30 years through our funds. Um, and that was sort of that was the basic idea of it, and uh, they the Swedish uh, Social Democratic Party they ran on this in 1982. They won the election and they implemented something you know more or less along these lines. It was a little bit different than the initial plan, but they did go about buying up Swedish stock just year after year after year, and. By 1991, so between 1984 and 1991, the funds bought up 7% of all the Swedish company stock. So they were they were on their path, though it was obviously going somewhat slow. And unfortunately, in 1992, the, the conservative coalition won, won re-election, not, not re-election, rather, they won election, and SDP got, got kicked out of government. And uh, the conservative coalition obviously was not quite uh, keen on keeping this program going, so they they cut it off at that point. The minor plan did not fail on its merit. On the merits, it was politically defeated by the right. Right. I, I, yeah, and I, I think some people don't um, some people don't realize this. So you will read some left commentary, which I think is maybe not as familiar with the nuts and bolts of it. That'll say, hey. You know, we tried this plan and the contradictions of social democratic capitalism or gradualism or something blew it up. And that's it's just not true. Like if, you know, a few hundred, you know, 100,000 people had voted differently in 1991, it would still be going, you know, and it, it you know, would have been up to 15 percent by the next election, you know. Um, and also what was interesting is I didn't put this in the paper, but. 
The 7% of Swedish company stock that they ended up socializing through this process, when the conservatives took control, they did not sell that stock off. What they did is they used it to endow research institutions. So they, they got rid of, you know, the program, but they kept the stock and used it as endowments for, for educational institutions. So it even still kind of worked on its own terms because at the end of it, you got a bunch of research institutions that are now being funded by state ownership of, of public stock, you know, so it's not, not a total loss. Unlike Sweden, Norway has a social wealth fund that has been a ongoing success. Tell me about Norway's and how it differs from, from Sweden's, if it does. The major difference between Norway and Sweden is that they managed to get social consensus on their fund. The Swedish one was supported by the left of center and was hated by the right of center. The Norwegian one has been supported by all the parties. And they they take slightly different approaches to managing it, but more or less it has a consensus across parties has been uh, governed by right-wing coalitions and left-wing coalitions. Um, And one of the reasons it might have more consensus is because it was funded by... One of their, the big one, the $1 trillion one, was funded by um, revenues that they receive from oil exploration. So Norway has a continental shelf that has a lot of oil in it, and they've been pumping it out for the last 40 years or so. And they've basically earmarked all of the returns from that oil and put it into this fund, which just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then they use the fund to buy up stock and bonds and real estate. So there's an aspect to it which appeals to a more conservative uh, mindset because, oh, well, we're saving this money for future generations and this is a good way to, to handle to handle this money. Um, whereas the Meidner one was more explicitly framed in terms of, hey, let's take over the companies. This one has, in effect, taken over a lot of the stock equity in the world, um, but... Uh, has not done so in like uh, sort of the same ideological framing, and that that seems to matter a lot to people. How you how you frame something, you know, will get people excited or not excited, even when it's the same idea. To what degree do you think what's going on is a social democratic path to something approximating actual socialism? And to what extent would you argue that it is something approximating actual socialism? So partially this depends, it's going to depend on definitions, right? So there, I think there are two ways to think about a socialist. Um, well, I guess we should start first with the difference between a socialist institution and a socialist country, right? So a socialist institution is going to be an institution that enables you to democratically and collectively own capital. Um, and so there are a lot of different forms that can take um for instance, I would maintain that, say, the Postal Service is a socialist institution because they own all these trucks and this whole, all these, all these buildings and this whole sprawling enterprise. This is owned publicly by the people of the United States. But that doesn't make the U.S. government or the U.S. as a whole socialist. It's a kind of uh, a, a small oasis of state ownership, you know, within a, you know, 95% capitalist society, right? Um, so you, you have this idea of a socialist institution, but then you have the separate, separate idea of, of a socialist country. And so then the question is, well, 
At what point does a country become socialist? How many socialist institutions, how big do those institutions need to be before you are comfortable saying, all right, this counts? Um, and I mean, I think there are a couple approaches. One is to say, all right, yeah, we're going to set a line. And if you get over this line, then you count as socialist. And if you don't, then, you, then you're not, right? It's a kind of binary approach. And I was talking to economist Brad DeLong the other day about this, and, and he said that his personal line is 75% of GDP. So if, if 75% of GDP comes from uh, sort of socialist institutions, like collectively owned capital and that sort of thing, then that counts as socialist. Uh, it seems, you know, it's sort of an arbitrary line, but, uh, but uh, under that line, Norway does not qualify because only 60% of its GDP comes from these kinds of institutions. Uh, in the United States, it's, it's obviously way, 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 way lower. Um, so that's one approach is to, is to just set a line and say, yep, once you get there, you're socialist. Before then, you're, 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 maybe you're on the path, but you're not there. Another approach is to view so socialist as, as when trying to define countries to to think about it more on a spectrum, right? So you can have countries that are more socialist than others. And to me, that I, I think is ultimately the more reasonable way to view it, right? Because even if you imagine your ideal socialist society where everything is collectively owned and that sort of thing, I mean, you're going to have, someone's going to set up like a lemonade stand or something, you know, like there's going to be, there are going to be some transactions that are not, that are not, you know, properly socialist. Um, but does that, does that mean it's not, that's now it's not a socialist country because it has one drop of, of capitalism in it? I think, I think to me it's more of a more socialist versus less socialist. And in that sense, um, these countries, especially Norway, has, has gone quite a bit down the path, a, a way further down the path than almost any other developed country in the direction of, of socialism, so defined. We don't have time to get too into depth about it now, but I think it's a really important question all of a sudden now that socialism is being invoked by so many people uh, when it had been sort of the proprietary term of the radical left <laughs> in the U.S. for such a long time. I don't think it's like urgent in a sense that it's a disaster if people define it differently, but I think it's an interesting and important thing to at least start talking about the different things it might mean now that so many people are using it to mean different things and it has always been thus right <laughs> anarchists <laughs> and communists you know so it's not a new thing and, and it, in some ways it's a, a less less heated uh uh divides than than we've had in the past but i i think it's useful especially if people are clear about all right this is what i want it to look like i think it can start to get not useful when someone says, here's what I mean when I'm thinking about socialism and your reaction is, that's not socialism. And then you just start kind of talking in abstractions about worker power and that sort of thing, you know, because then it's like, okay, you know, offer an alternative, I guess, is sort of my, if you want to have a constructive dialogue, it's, it's useful to, to have your own sense of what, what it's going to look like and not just kind of come back with slogans, I guess, about worker power and that sort of thing. I want to ask you some conventional questions that anyone asks whenever Nordic countries, the political economy of Nordic countries is invoked. What about their small size and homogeneity? Does that, is that why they're able to do these things? The small size piece is one I think people have exactly backwards because 
small countries face a lot of barriers to to being socialistic, especially in our sort of new globalized world. Because if you're a small country, you're going to depend on trade a lot. Um, Sweden, I think 50% of their GDP is exports. In the U.S., it's like 11% of GDP. And that's sort of an unavoidable thing. You're small, so you can't produce all that you need. You know, in a big country like the U.S., we got we could produce, you know, almost everything that we needed internally if we really wanted to, because we've got we've got everything, right? We've got mines, we've got fields where we can grow food. We, you know, we've got all these things. If you're a small country at the top of the world that's like frozen over nine months of the year, you're going to be importing a lot of stuff, which means you're going to need to export a lot of stuff, and so that creates a lot of challenges to implementing this kind of model because. If you're dependent on exports, then your system needs to be competitive, in the sense that your exports need to be priced in a way that is gonna make them able to be sold in the global market, and so that's just gonna put a lot of pressure on you to 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 keep things into con- in control, make sure labor costs don't go way out of control, and that sort of thing, which is not present in bigger countries. So. I actually tend to think that that the opposite is true. That small countries are going to have a harder time doing a kind of more radicalish um, economic systems than bigger countries. As far as homogeneity goes, that one's a little bit tougher. And I think with that one, you have to distinguish between uh, political success and practical success. So political success says. Because they're homogeneous, they are more willing to set up systems like this, right? Because they are like, "Oh, I know my neighbor. He's like I am. He goes to the Lutheran church." You know, <laughs> like there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of uh, fellow feeling that they have with with one another that makes them more willing willing to be equal. Um, but that just says that they're more politically willing to put these policies in the place. That does not say that. That homogeneity makes the policies work, right? So that's a really key difference because you can, you could, if the policies work no matter where you put them in place, but some countries are just more willing to put them in place, then that still means that we should work on getting them in place here and work on trying to convince people to become more willing to put them in place here. Heterogeneity isn't the obstacle in the United States. Racism and things like the legacy of colonialism are it's not like ra- right. like like race is not a real biological thing <laughs> there's no objective yeah, no, I think, objective I think that's heterogeneity that's the that's some obstacle <laughs> right heterogeneity and homogeneity are are big words hiding the more proximate issue right when you say we're too heterogeneous you mean something like uh, people are too racist or something like that, which which didn't suggest that, well, maybe we could work on that. And if we can work on that and fix that, then we can get to where we want to want to be. Right. Another another aspect of this, though, on the homogeneity point is homogeneity and heterogeneity. It's it's all kind of in the eye uh, of the beholder. Right. It's like just in the same sense that like an ant colony looks very homogeneous to me. But people find ways to uh, create differences with one another. And so if you go through like the history of the development of these states in the last century especially, these states, it wasn't like everyone in the country said, hey, 
let's build out a social democratic society that also, you know, engages in a lot of state ownership. It was not like a consensus thing across all of society. What you saw instead was a pretty clear divide between farmers and, you know, proletarians, for lack of a better word, industrial workers. They were on one side of the divide and then sort of professionals and more affluent people were on another. And it was very, very cleanly split. So in all these countries, the way they got to where they got was through what was called a red-green coalition, where you would have the industrial trade unionist party would join in a coalition with the uh, rural farmers party. And that's how they got things done. And it's only after the fact that there formed a social consensus around keeping it. Uh, and we formed similar social consensuses, more or less, around, for instance, Social Security, where, you know, the right rarely, I don't know, they, 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 some of them want to get rid of it, but they don't ever do it, you know what I mean? Um, and so I think, I think there's a mistake people can make where they can read a current consensus back into history, which didn't exist at the time. And, and part of the reason it didn't exist at the time is because they did see themselves as heterogeneous along class lines. And there was very serious divisions along class lines that are, you know, not entirely analogous, but somewhat similar to divisions we might have along racial lines or, or, or religious lines or whatever. We would be remiss not to mention that we have a social wealth fund right here in the United States, the Alaska Permanent Fund. What is it? The Alaska Permanent Fund was created in the late 70s, early 80s. It is um, very similar to the Norwegian Fund. The people of Alaska voted for a constitutional amendment in the late 70s, saying that 25% of all of the income received from basically all natural resource extraction, um, gas, oil, minerals, whatever, 25% of the income from that is going to be put into a permanent fund, and they call it the Alaska Permanent Fund. And the money that goes into the fund, it is never touched. It becomes a permanent principle. It just sits in the fund. And that fund is invested, and those investment returns are paid out as an annual dividend to everyone in the state. So on good years, the dividend has been as high as $2,000 per person, which is $8,000 for a family of four. So, you know, it, it starts to get up there in, in value. Um, and that's not even a fraction of, you know, what it could theoretically be if they would put more and more money in and, and if, if they hadn't rated it on occasion, which they have. Um, so that's the basic idea, and that's more or less what I'm advocating on a national level um, to just copy that model. Let's create a big fund that we all get an equal dividend from every year. Uh, Alaska's been doing it for 40 years. It's been very successful. Well, speaking of the success... You know, Alaska's obviously not exactly a utopia, but but what might things look like? What is the what is the data suggest things might look like if they didn't have the fund in place? Yeah, so it, it, you know, one of the funny things is uh, when you're trying to figure out um, what the effects of it are, there are, there hasn't been a whole lot of like study of it, and they don't spend a lot of time in Alaska with their government trying to figure out what the effects are. And some of the stuff I read suggests that the reason they don't do this is because everyone in Alaska imagine, thinks of themselves as owners of the fund. They think, this is my dividend because I own part of the fund. And so it doesn't 
create the same mentality that we have around other programs, right? Like, so, so when we have the food stamp program, for instance, all this money is spent trying to evaluate the program and trying to figure out, like, uh, if we give children food, does that make them do better in school? Does that, you know, does that help their psychological well-being? Like, all these tests and tests and tests to try to uh, measure effectiveness uh, of these programs. They don't do that there because it's like, well... What do you mean? It's it's my money. It doesn't matter if it's effective or not. You know, uh, however you would define effective in the first place. Um, so I actually think that's a, in some ways the lack of of research on this is very promising because it 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 shows you that this sort of universal program where everyone is made to to understand that they they have an equal ownership in it 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 pushes against the tendencies we usually have with like welfare programs where people want to judge them and say they're not working and that sort of thing. Um, but there have been some e- e- efforts. So, for instance, there was a paper not, not too many years ago that said that it reduced the poverty rate in the state by 20%. Um, and more generally, Alaska, it, it is the most equal state in the country uh, measured by Gini. And I'm sure this has a, has a significant, uh, is a significant part of that. Um, so th- those are sort of the evaluative aspects that I, I, I was able to find. And then there's also the uh, aspect of public support. There is a decent amount of data on that, and public support there is massive. So like 80% of Alaskans say that dividend checks are an important source of income for people in my community. Um, like It's that level of, of, of public support. And this is in a state that Republicans win every year, you know, for, for president and governor and, and all the rest of it. So Norway and Alaska have a lot of oil, but your plan is not that we just convert the U.S. full throttle into a petro-state that contributes to driving Earth towards destruction. I- I explain what your proposal is for how the U.S. government starts to accumulate these assets into a national social wealth fund, and then how proceeds would be distributed. You mentioned the universal basic dividend. So what's important to note about these funds is uh, those two were funded by oil. Not all of the social wealth funds in the world were funded that way. So like Norway, ha- Norway has a second one called the uh, Government Pension Fund Norway, as opposed to Global Government Pension Fund Global. And that one was not funded with oil. Um, there's one that just started in New South Wales and Australia is a dividend-paying social wealth fund, not started with oil. So the oil is uh, obviously is very helpful for you know because it's very easy to make the case to people that hey one this oil is going to run out so we kind of need to save the money and two who deserves the oil why should a rich person get all this money for like it's a very easy and persuasive case to make and I think that's what allows some of these funds to get off the ground more easily but once the money's in the fund it doesn't matter where the money came from. It's in the fund. You invest it. It doesn't matter. So the question is, can we get the money from somewhere else? And so I, I, I kind of just went through everything that people have written about this over the years and tried to sum up all of the different ideas. So one idea is voluntary contributions, uh, which I think is not likely. But, you know, if you're rich and you want to put money in the fund for everyone, then, you know, we'll encourage you to do that. And, you know, maybe some people will. Um, a second option is to ring fence existing state assets. So the U.S. government owns a ton of land and buildings and stuff like that. And you could try to find some way to put those in the fund. Um, that, that one's going to be a little bit more difficult, and I don't think you'd get a whole lot of money that way. Um, a third option is leveraged 
uh, purchases. So the government can borrow money at, at low rates um, already. So in a, in a normal year, I think I had in the paper um, between 1990 and 2017, the average interest rate on a one-year treasury bond was 3%. The average rate of return in the S&P 500 was 11%. So the government can borrow at 3% and invest at 11%. You know, and that's not an automatic thing, but you know, generally speaking, interests on government bonds are way lower than the rates of returns for other kinds of assets. So the government has a unique ability to use the fact that it can issue debt to buy up assets that are going to generate even more uh, a better financial returns. Um, a fourth option is uh, monetary seniorage. The basic idea here is when the government uh, is trying to put more money into the economy, which it does on a regular basis to keep inflation up and you know keep things well oiled uh, what they typically do is they they print more money and then they buy treasury bonds but they don't have to buy treasury bonds there's nothing unique about treasury bonds they could also just go out and buy basically anything else including stock or real estate or any other kind of asset and so what I propose is for the Federal Reserve to stop buying treasury bonds when it's trying to put more money into the system and to instead buy stocks to buy exchange-traded funds. And the Bank of Japan has been doing this for the last 10 years or so, and they've bought up a huge percentage of, of, of Japanese companies. Uh, and people don't even realize it. You can read about it in, the, uh, in some of the more niche financial press, but... Uh, it has not been registered globally as Japan is ever so slowly in nationalizing all their companies, but, but they really are uh, right now. And then the last one, and this is probably the more kind of compelling and, and interesting one ultimately, is obviously taxes or levies. Um, so I had like nine ideas on this. Um, I'll just go through a few. An IPO tax. So whenever a company goes public, uh, whenever a company goes public, they, they, their value usually goes up by 20 to 30%. Because if you can trade your stock publicly, it's more valuable because there's more liquidity and the risk goes down, blah, blah, blah. And so the idea is, well, why don't we say if you're going to go public, then you got to give us 5% of, of your company in, in stock or in cash if you want to do cash. Um, that still gives you a 25% increase in value from, from listing it publicly, but now we own 5% of it. Um, mergers and acquisitions tax. So every time a company merges with another, we could tax 3% of the value of that transaction. Financial transactions taxes. So every time someone sells a stock or a bond, we could get a small percentage of that. Uh, we could uh, tax the management of funds. So hedge funds, we could say, hey, uh, we're going to charge you uh, five basis points on all your assets under management, um, and they got to fork that over to the U.S. government every year. They'll pass that on to their customers, but their customers are all very rich people, so who cares, right? Um, inheritance taxes. We have a very low inheritance tax in the U.S. called the estate tax. You could jump that up pretty high and say, hey, this is like a collective inheritance. We're not just taxing it and then it goes into some black hole. We're taxing it and then it, and then it goes into everyone's share. Everyone gets to benefit in that, right? So you could imagine a situation where it's like 50% of your, of your assets, that those go to your descendants. The other 50% is going to go to everyone um, and so on and so forth. So, I mean, you get the basic idea. It's like let's, let's have these really targeted taxes on 
targeted at wealthy people and targeting their capital and that sort of thing. And, and through that process, we can slowly move the ownership of capital away from very affluent people and into this collective pot that we all own an equal share of. My last question is politically, how does this come about? Is this an idea that you would like to see picked up by this current generation of insurgent left candidates? This is an it, this is a very interesting idea because it has proven to be very compelling to a lot of different people. So not just leftists, but like moderates and even conservatives in other countries have found something interesting in this, right? I mean, Alaska is one of the most conservative states in the country, and, and they they have this. You know, in Norway, when the conservatives get into power, they don't try to dismantle it. They, they say they support it. And more recently, uh, in Hillary Clinton's campaign memoir, she said she wished she had run on this idea, that someone had brought this to her and she seriously considered it. Um, but But she said, quote, we couldn't make the numbers work, which doesn't make any sense to me because it's not a, I don't know, the whole idea is just incomprehensible, but she was interested in it, right? So it it's a kind of thing that cuts across a lot of different groups because it's it's both, yeah, I mean, it is it is socialistic, but it's also practical and works and, you know, we have a lot of working examples of it. Um, so I think it's interesting to adopt it on that level. And then I also think, look, I mean, ultimately, if we're going to have this kind of insurgent lefty, you know, socialist block, at some point we're going to need to articulate what's our vision of collective ownership going to look like. And there are a lot of ways you can go. You can say that you want to focus on worker cooperatives, for instance. You could uh, try to focus on, you know, more direct nationalized ownership and that sort of thing. Um, or you could you could go this route and as far as I can tell, within this sort of burgeoning movement, the question of how we're going to handle the capital component of it, that is not answered. Um, we have pretty clear view on, yeah, we want a really nice welfare state, Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have a clear view yet on on how we're going to tackle wealth inequality and how we're going to tackle, ultimately, you know, social ownership. And... I'm sort of throwing this out there and, and obviously hoping that, that this will be the idea or at least one of the ideas that gets picked up uh, as we go forward. Well, I hope so as well. Matt Brunig, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Matt Brunig is the founder of People's Policy Project, a socialist think tank. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that the proletariat will use its political supremacy to wrest, by degree, all capital from the bourgeoisie. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends and family about the show. Please make propaganda for us. 
And do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>